And now, get growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 and KSTE.com. Here is Fred Hoffman. Happy Sunday morning to you. Welcome to Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Farmer Fred here, Fred Hoffman, UC Cooperative Extension Lifetime Master Gardener, garden columnist with the Lodi News Sentinel, the guy that does all the typing at FarmerFred.com, all the ranting at the Farmer Fred Rant blog page at Twitter.com slash FarmerFredDailyGardenTips. Lots of snark. Lots of other digital folderall, YouTube, Pinterest, Instagram, uh, what else? Oh, the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page where I posted pictures of all the hail that came down in my backyard and front yard yesterday and an inch of rain as well. What is this about March coming in like a lion and going out like a lamb? It's it's a lion all month long. What are we going to do? What about our plants? What's happening? We're going to find out when we talk with Sacramento County Master Gardener Pam Bone. He has advice for us on taking care of our plants during late winter and early spring. Spring, by the way, supposed to begin Tuesday at 9.15 a.m. if you want to start planning your party. Uh, what else is happening uh, coming up here? Uh, full moon on March 31st, so I won't worry about that yet. Got a garden question? Give us a call, won't you? 916-576-1578 or toll-free 866 866- Three three one eight two five five. Email send it to Fred at farmerfred.com. Joining us here in the studio, she started the Master Gardener program in Sacramento County back during uh, the Carter administration. I do believe. I thought you were going to say the Pleistocene era or something <laughs> like you normally do. But <laughs> the Carter administration. Yes, actually, we start. I was hired in nineteen seventy nine. Um, a fairly freshly minted graduate of UC Davis, and we graduated our first class in 1980, April of 1980. So we're coming on um, 38 years of master gardening. So any 1980 master gardeners still around? Yes, there are. Oh, uh, Fran Clark oh, is an Fran. active yeah, master yeah, gardener. Yeah. She's still there. Marsha Prowitz uh, is an active master gardener. Uh, Virginia Fagans is an um, active master gardener. So yeah, we have several from that class. It was a Pretty productive class. Yeah, and 81 and 82 and so on and yeah. so forth. And what year were you? Uh, 82. 82. Oh, 82. well, see, look at you. You've been around. <laughs> yes. So that means that I hired you. I brought you into the program. We didn't even did have interviews in 82, I don't believe. Oh, yeah. Did you then? Oh, that no, 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 been... no, no, you're right. There, there weren't interviews, but you certainly preferred resumes that came in that had, oh, you had a history to have... of volunteerism. Oh, definitely. We yeah. had an extensive application process, but... Uh, we didn't uh, interview people at that time. It was kind of looking at your application and seeing what you'd done. It's good to see that in the Master Gardener program, it's picking up speed. There are more and more counties that have it, more and more that are holding training sessions every year. And this is a good thing. And if you uh, start hearing about uh, your local county uh, cooperative extension uh, recruiting new Master Gardeners, don't think uh, to yourself, well, I like gardening. I should be a Master Gardener. Well, that's not the way they think at Cooperative Extension. The people that are going to bring you into the program, they're going to want to know primarily, are you going to be willing to share the information you're going to learn with others? Do you have a history of volunteerism in your past that would indicate you like working with the community? That's exactly what we're looking for. Exactly. You nailed it. So it's not so much that you have interest in gardening, although that can't hurt. But it's it's more of, are you willing to contribute 50 hours of community service each year? 
And Fred, we do want people that have an interest in gardening, yeah. too. They have to enjoy, but they don't have to be some specialist or have a... In fact, people ask all the time, well, Pam, uh, you have a degree in horticulture and you're a master gardener. Well, I came in through the back door. I mean, I started the program and they made me an honorary master gardener when I left. So um, I volunteer now, but before I got paid to do this stuff. Uh, and so it's a little bit different. The master gardeners, that came, like yourself, that came into the program originally... No, you didn't have degrees in horticulture at all, and you did it because you wanted to help other people and extend that information. Selfishly, most master gardeners want that uh, UC education, mm-hmm. and which is great because you are. You're going to get a top uh, education. Well, I was in the communication industry anyway back then, so right. that, no big deal about sharing information with others. That's what I do for a living. And actually, you... Parlayed your communication ability into what you're doing now for master gardening volunteering. Because I remember um, somebody came to me. How many years has it been? You've been on the air now. Is it been twenty? <laughs> 20 is, the show is 20, in its twenty sixth year. Twenty six. I thought yeah. it was twenty five years. In your twenty yeah. sixth year. Well, twenty six years ago, they actually asked me as an. I was employed at the time um, with Cooperative Extension if I'd like to start a radio show or. And I said, oh, no, I just don't have the time for that. But I know the perfect person for it. I have a master gardener that would be outstanding. It was you. Huh. And I never left. And you never left. (laughs) And it's like me with Cooperative Extension. I've been associated with them since 1979, um, employed for, you know, till 90, into 97. And now I'm retired from the university. And have they gotten rid of me yet? No, because master gardeners stick around. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. All right. And we, we like sharing information. Definitely. All right. You want to, uh, phones are ringing. You want to answer a question? Sure. Too? But right. I, I want to, uh, we have to share some information about this garden grappler thing. You chose it without me knowing what you're choosing. And it's a strange one. So when you get to it, let's talk about that. Well, we will. <laughs> That's for sure. When we started at 11 o'clock, it's not that strange. No, it's a, it, I, I'm, I'm trying to recall what was the process in my brain that came to this question. Right, I know, but I want to give people plenty of time and myself to figure out the answer. Well, I, I'll tell you, I, I kind of have an idea of how I came to that question. Oh, okay, well, we'll figure we, that out. We, I knew we were going to talk about abiotic disorders of oh, plants. yes. All right, and abiotic disorders are basic for the most part, human-caused issues. Or environmental caused or, environmental or ca- things like that. But it all goes Climate, back culture. to the old saw of the right plant in the right place. That's right. That's true. And oh, the garden okay. grappler question is kind of about the right plant in the oh, right okay. place. Okay. All right. I see how you did that. Yes, let's take a call. All right. Love Good. to. Oh, thank you very much here. Where are we? Let's go to Turlock and talk with John here on Get Growing. Good morning, John. Uh, morning, Fred. Hey, I had a, a question uh, uh, about uh, uh, pruning a redbud, I, and I don't remember. This is a 20-year-old redbud, and, and I don't remember, you know, if it's an Oklahoma or, you know, what, what variety it is. It's a redbud. It's getting ready to bloom if it hasn't already. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, getting, it's getting there. Okay. But the problem over the years is that, you know, it's surrounded by tall trees. I mean, in my yard, in the, on the uh, southeast side, the south side, the the southwest side, the west side. So it, what's happened over the years is, is, is it's you know reaching for the sky, and all the lower branches have pretty much gone. I mean, there's probably no viable lower branches. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I'd say maybe uh, 10, 12 feet up is the lowest branch there is. And so my question is simply this: uh, you know, I have cut down my my. Uh, one of the trees, it's on the south uh, side, it's an orange tree, and I've been bringing it down. It's down to about 12 feet, so it's not, it's, uh, you know, and that's probably the biggest uh, uh, shade 
part of the uh, that you know that's that's happening to the red bud. So my question is simply this: If I start bringing the uh, the red bud tree down, I know you're not supposed to top trees, and I don't really you know I don't do it on any of my other non-fruit trees now. But if I if I just start bringing topping off a little bit at a time, will I get lower branches coming back now that it's going to get more sunlight uh, uh, than it had in the past? Pam, even if he cut down the other trees surrounding that, would mm-hmm. those lower branches ever come back? Probably not at yeah. this point. Oh, there, there's okay. a possibility that a few would sprout, but what happens if you were just to lop off those is that all the growth would just come out of the top, and you'd get that yeah. uh, hedge look where they're all... And so you might get one that will sprout a little bit lower down, but uh, unfortunately it'll probably be all concentrated near the top. And then now what you've got are the, all these branches that just sprouted that are weakly attached because they're not attached in their original position that they were in um, like you have now. So I would say you probably are going to have a tall tree that you can work with making some l- maybe larger things thinning cuts is there any way of bringing it down to another more natural layer of tree where um, we call those reduction cuts where you're reducing the height of the tree but you're still making a thinning cut so because you're leaving a leader behind instead of just lopping it off is there are there any of those left for clarification by thinning cut you mean removing the entire branch the entire branch back or back to another thing that can resume the lead right Right. you're leaving the leaders intact that's what's really important The purpose of this thinning is to allow more light to penetrate right more light to penetrate and then to bring down the height a little with these thinning cuts because the topping cuts just usually make really unsound unsafe cuts that um we're talking about we haven't gotten to talking about abiotic disorders over at uh, kste but we were at KFBK. And one of the things that is that these large wounds then um, are areas for decay, uh, which are caused by pathogens. But just the fact that you've got a big, large wound, you can get sunburn, which we didn't get to talk about a whole lot. We can talk about that coming up. So that's the thing that I'm thinking. You can get sunburn, scalding of the limbs, of the um, trunk itself. Um, the topping then will leave weakly attached branches that can split out eventually, and all your growth will be way up in the top third of the tree instead of being distributed evenly throughout the top two-thirds. So if you can't do it without causing all those problems, then don't do it. What are the surrounding trees around that red bud? Oh, I've got a I've got a crepe myrtle, and then I had my uh, orange tree, which is yeah, orange, that's an evergreen. That's the one that I that I brought right. down, and okay. then I've got my neighbor's got a couple of really tall trees, and I've got a Chanticleer pear that mm-hmm. also uh, on the on the west side. So it's uh, surrounded, you know, like I say. <laughs> yeah, it's surrounded, yeah. but like I say, and you know, and uh, and uh, it is pretty. It's pretty thin on top. There is. It's not. It's not something that I can thin out. That you know, the you know, like uh. some trees have lots it's not uh, like i say it's just uh, you know whatever so maybe i'll try grafting uh, you know what i you know, was going take- to say too unfortunately it sounds to me like the probably the pruning cut you need to do is at the ground it sounds <laughs> i mean really it's it sounds like it's just competing yeah. there's just too much around it it's always going to be leggy yeah. and trying to graft something else onto it so that it's down low unless you're going to get complete sun around that tree Mm -hmm. again and it sounds like you might have gotten it on one side but maybe not enough i don't know that it's ever going to compete maybe take it out and put it in the dogwood 
Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> well, exactly. No, I, I probably could. Yeah. yeah. Well, a dogwood uh, is a good understory tree. Understory that likes yeah. that. Yeah. And yeah. it'll stay low yeah. And, yeah. and like that shade. Sure. So give and, that a shot. Well, John, we have to run here. All right. Thanks, all, all right. Good luck. All right. Uh, Terry's looking nervous. Terry's running the board today. We'll take a break and more get growing on the way here at Talk 650 KSTE. Tired of fighting? You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. With Pam Bone answering your gardening questions at 916-576-1578 or 866-331-8255. Email, send it to fred at farmerfred.com. Ostensibly, we're talking abiotic disorders of plants, which are problems that could be environmentally caused or human caused. And as we stated over on the KFBK show, Pam, the number one cause too much water or too little water. Definitely. Yeah, or, or slow-draining soil. Um, no doubt about the it. The one thing we didn't talk about was heat stress. So let's talk right. a little bit about that, about what happens. And sometimes, like when we're talking to John and Turlock, mm-hmm. the one thing that might happen if you took off all those trees and left that one tree you wanted, that red bud, you're looking at possible sunburn. Or if he takes off all those limbs uh, and tries to reduce it, when people top trees, they don't realize, oh, now you've left the tree vulnerable and to sunburn. Mm -hmm. And I have a really good example of what you just said. Uh, My neighbor had a big, huge oak tree, and it shaded our side of the house as well. I mean, it was totally planted as, as a seedling by a bird and was way too close to the house and should have been taken out. But my espalier apple was absolutely fried, fried. And yet an apple can take full sun, but it was used to having some of that shade. And the bark um, sunburned, the leaves all fell off. Um, I have a maple, the same thing, this little uh, maple tree, same thing, just fried it. And I have a Japanese maple where the same neighbor, uh, a different neighbor at the time, but um, had a bunch of trees in the backyard took those out, and my Japanese maple, huge wounds uh, from sunburn. And the tree, uh, there was enough good wood left behind that the tree's still fine. This was 20 years ago, and it's still growing and everything. But decay can get in there, bark beetles can get in there, or just the fact that it's sunburn means that you have less of that tissue that's supporting the tree for water and nutrition, the vascular system of the tree. So, yeah. But heat, heat stress can also include the temperature of the soil. And oh, it, yeah. And it has to do with plants in the wrong place. Right. Where you've taken plants that were meant to be in a moderate climate zone and planted them in the desert, for example. That's true. That's true. And you know, another one I just thought of that's really common here is the heat stress where people in containers, they've got them on patios. Oh, yeah. And it might be a, something that needs full sun, but they've got that reflection off of the concrete or whatever it happens to be. And then this heat buildup and it, it, the heat stress alone. Heat stress in a containerized plant that's in full sun, especially in a black plastic pot, uh, can lead to temperatures of the soil up to 140 degrees, which is like an oven, basically. And kills the roots. It kills the roots, and you get quicker water evaporation. And the first thing soil does when water starts disappearing, it retracts, it contracts, it gets tighter, it gets it closer to the plant itself, which means that when you go to water, the water just pours down the side of the pot, never touching the soil, and just out the bottom. Exactly. If you're smart enough to have drainage. Yeah, so definitely. Definitely, um, heat stress in many different factors can affect a lot of different plants, and that's a abiotic disorder, mm-hmm. which is defined as something that is not 
a pathogen or an insect. It's not a pest. It's not a fungi or a bacteria or a virus. And there are quite a few abiotic disorders. Now, a lot of people will think that they have a pest. It can lead to it. An abiotic disorder like the too much water, too mm. little water, uh, filling the soil with uh, water instead of air and oxygen can lead to just ultimate death of the roots on its own abiotically, or it could lead to a pathogen like water mold fungi, the phytophthoras, the armillarias, or you were mentioning earlier on KFPK, um, verticillium wilt, right. for instance, yeah. in tomatoes and other plants. Which won't rear its ugly head until the heat no. of the summer. And that's where a lot of these abiotic disorders show up, especially with the water-related ones. Mm-hmm. People will think that something's wrong, that they haven't watered enough, and the plant will start to wilt, and they'll start to die back. It'll start to yellow. It might have crispy edges on the leaves. And it's because the root system or the um, internal vascular system of the plant's been all messed up earlier with the whole water problem that it looks like a lack of water but it may be just too much water in the soil let's go to the phones great answer some more gardening questions out to american canyon the american canyon over by uh, napa as opposed oh by to, napa as opposed to over yes by i was thinking Folsom. all yeah. right so in in the real american canyon <laughs> thanks for uh, giving us a call yes hi. hi um i have a 30 to 40 foot blaze maple and um, the one of the roots of the tree is uh, keeps making my gate bind because as it grows, it I don't know expands or something. And I have cut off like the top of that root to free up the gate. And I know that wasn't a good idea. So what else can I do? If you have any ideas, raise the gate. <laughs> That's what I was thinking yeah. too. Yeah. Because you don't know is that that root alone if you keep cutting the top of it off that also opens the door for various wood rot yeah. decay fungi to get in there and rot the root and then if you thought oh well maybe I'll just cut that root well is that the support root for it or is that a root that's transporting a lot of water and nutrients and oh yikes now the tree doesn't do so well that's a real dilemma and it also includes people who are mowing their lawn this time of year and there are surface rooting and they uh, shear off that top layer of bark on those surface roots which can be an invitation to disease right yeah that's what i did (laughs) yeah and it seemed to make the tree weep it was weird the trunk uh started like weeping like a black something well that's different well well you might have gotten in some sort of um decay organism or you might have gotten sometimes we get that black weeping stuff from a wound and it's called slime flux and it's just like that's what it was was slime flux what it was yeah and what happens is the wound itself builds up yeasts and bacteria and then um it weeps out and then as it hits the air it turns black and this may or may not be a serious disorder in the plant itself but it does indicate that there was a wound that then eventually could lead to some other decay but the fluxing itself just means that you've got all that sap coming out um, from that uh, yeast and bacteria working away in there it sounds sort of like sooty mold in a way yeah it looks like sooty mold in a way but it's weeping down the trunk and it looks black and the stuff's very acidic and it'll hit the lawn and um, turn the lawn um, sometimes brown and dead 
if it's wow. growing in a lawn area. So we try to avoid slime flux if you can. And because mostly because it's coming from wounds and we want to avoid wounds so that it won't lead to more severe problems down the road. Is that the one that smells like alcohol? The alcoholic flux is a little different. Up mm. in the foothills, they mostly have that or it starts up your way in yeah. Folsom and it smells just like alcohol, but it comes out foamy white mm. instead of the blacky color. So, okay. yeah, definitely. Mm. You're not, yeah. You, okay. So, Anyhow, that well, I guess I'll raise my gate. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Problem solved. Thank you. All right, Sue. Thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Bye. Yeah, a lot of abiotic disorders. Uh, basically, it's it boils down to the right plant in the right place. That's exactly if, if right. You may, and this is the time of year to be planning your garden. And then hit the sales and then start planting, although fall is better for planting. But this is the second best time to plant. Uh, it, you got to consider the plant that's going in and you got to consider your soil. And it always pays to do a soil test. Get a soil test done to see what your soil needs and, and also to get some basic information for yourself about about your soil. And one of the factors in soil that you should know about is the pH. In fact, I was going to say, even I've never actually done a soil test on my soil, except for when I had my TV show. We used the kits to see what they were like compared to a commercial. And basically the soil has been so disturbed and moved around and everything else that um, the nitrogen phosphorus levels were not really that... helpful or useful but the ph definitely right. um and even the test kits when we were testing them for grassroots uh, we found out many of the ones that you can buy at the garden centers were very um accurate yeah, or at least yeah. accurate enough for what your purposes are and ph is the one type of soil test that i think um, can be very useful we'll take a break when we come back let's talk a little bit more about ph and what it all means as we continue with get growing on talk 650 kste patty it's Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. Welcome back. It's Get Growing. Pam Bone is here, Master Gardener. We have a garden grappler coming up at 11 after the news at 11. Clue available at FarmerFred.com. Clue available at the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page in the description for today's show. And let's talk a little bit about uh, acid-loving plants. And Pam, I think one of my favorite acid-loving plants are blueberries. And they certainly do like an acid soil, around 5.5. They have to have an acid soil, really. And Mm. most of our soils are more in the range of 7, 6.5 to 7. Yes. Which is uh, neutral. Which is neutral, which is good. And 6.5. I think we mostly have just slightly acidic soils in a lot of places. We're certainly on a place that um, when people come from the East Coast and say, oh, I need to lime my soil here. No, you don't. No, yeah, because the soils back there are very alkaline. Mm -hmm. And and here they tend to be neutral to acidic. Depends where you live. And in the foothills, they tend to be more acidic. But with blueberries, Mm -hmm. it really pays to grow them in large containers using an acid soil base. And what I like to use, in fact, I, I loaded the van with all sorts of bags of this oh. stuff um, last weekend, is a combination. It's a formula for uh, a blueberry soil mix that uh, Ed Livo worked on when he was with Dave Wilson Nursery for growing blueberries. And it's one-third peat moss, one-third small bark, and one-third of an azalea rhododendron camellia soil mix. It's sold sometimes as uh, camellia soil or rhododendron mm-hmm. soil, but basically it's sort of an acid-based soil. So those three combined in a large container, along with a handful of soil sulfur, can get you that pH of 5.5 that blueberries 
thrive in. And then how do you maintain that then? I found, because I did this back in Herald and, mm-hmm. and originally set up the containers that way, and I would test the pH every year, and it was always between 5.5 and 5.9. Oh, it so stayed I, there. Yeah, I find all I had to do is throw in maybe a little soil sulfur each fall. And you found that 5.5 was and 5.9 were low enough for yeah. the blueberries? Yeah, that we, ah. had, we had plenty of production. There was no problem there. But uh, that brings up the question of right plant, right place. So if you were thinking of planting blueberries, and I see a lot of blueberry plants in the nurseries right now, but remember that you can't go home and just stick them in the ground and, and get the best results. Mm-mm. Because Not at all. you don't know your pH. No. And that's why these pH test kits we're talking about are very important. So if you think you, want, you have an area at your home where you want to plant blueberries in the ground, get that little pH test kit. And make sure that the pH is at least below 6. Well, and I was thinking the same thing with um, other acid lovers like um, uh, azaleas, rhododendrons. Mm -hmm. You think, oh, why is it not doing well? Maybe the pH. You know, there's a little chart um, that talks about nutrients and how they're tied up and not available to plants. Even though it might be in the soil, people put on fertilizers for some of these acid lovers and find out, oh, it's it's not helping a lot um, only because they... uh, they're not putting on the right fertilizer, or it's all they did do was just lower the pH. They would have solved their problem. And uh, pH, if you're wondering, means potential hydrogen. And uh, the scientist that developed this mm-hmm. concept, I think way back in like 1909, mm-hmm. was a Danish chemist. He originally wanted pH to stand for the power of hydrogen. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's a good one. So potential hydrogen ions is yeah. what the pH refers to. But it's interesting, the... Uh, nutrients that get tied up if the ph is wrong for instance a lot of people on their citrus leaves if they see yellowing citrus leaves they think oh my goodness i have chlorosis i need to add ironite right and that's the the first jump you should not make nope is because a yellowing leaf on a citrus has many many possible causes especially you know one of them we talked earlier keeping them too wet citrus are sensitive to waterlogged soils wet feet if they're growing in a lawn yellowing leaves is often due to that also this time of the year fred you've got a citrus that's gone all winter they're evergreen Mm -hmm. and the leaves may be somewhat yellow or maybe even have some little um intravenal chlorosis we call it It looks like a little christmas tree pattern where it's a little darker in the veins and it could just be that the iron that's in the soil is tied up and it can't draw the nutrients up that it needs right now as soon as the um roots start growing and it's warm uh, the leaves look normal Cool soil can uh, lead to sure. a lack of nutrient uh, uptake by the plants. And sometimes when people put on that extra iron, it actually leads to an iron overdose for the plant when the plant wakes up and the soil wakes up and all of a sudden the plant's getting too much iron. Right. What If you go through to the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page and scroll through it, you're going to see one post I put up with different pictures of yellowing citrus Mm. leaves and the cause of each. And notice the pattern of the yellowing. It's different in all of them. One was due to a lack of nitrogen. One was due to chlorosis. One was due to boron content. One was due to just oversaturated soils and, and other causes. But take a look at that pattern of yellowing and note the differences. And then when you look at your yellowing leaves on your citrus, you have something to compare it to, to maybe narrow down what possibly may be the cause. And you might also um, add citrus leaf miner because from a distance, Mm -hmm. people will call and say it looks like it needs fertilizer or something because 
They look at the leaves. They're off color. One guy described it to me as the whole tree looks like it's white at the, near the tips. Well, when he looked closer, you could see the little mining patterns yeah. of this citrus leaf miner. But from a distance, it looked like, oh, I don't have enough fertilizer because it's all bleached out. The one whitish thing you should worry about on citrus if they look like uh, little tubes of white because oh, well. that comes from the Asian citrus psyllid. Which, thankfully, right now we don't have. Uh, well, we don't have the disease. We might have the psyllid. We may have yeah. the quarantine. <laughs> the quarantine, that's yeah. true. But uh, if you start seeing those little tubules, white tubules on the leaves, and uh, what you want to do is uh, call the authorities. Definitely. Call the Cooperative Extension. Talk yes. to the Master Gardeners. Talk to your A commissioner. Definitely. Mm, you right. see that. And, right. and get it identified. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, so... so um, you know, we think of, um, I think of acid-loving plants, and when you were talking about acid lovers, I was thinking, well, gosh, what can I think of besides azaleas, camellias, and blueberries? And then heather, of course, because you hear about all the mm-hmm. acid uh, plants and the heaths and the heathers of Scotland and that. And so that's one of them. But we don't grow heathers here much, yeah. do we? Magnolias like acid. Magnolias so. do. Oh, camellias do, too. Yeah, camellias yeah. do, too. Citrus do, too. Yeah. And citrus c- prefers. And citrus like, do, yeah. that's for we sure. We grow a lot of acid-loving plants. Actually, here. and magnolia, that's a good one. That's yeah. true. You're right. Actually, a lot of things that don't necessarily have to have it really acidic, prefer to be slightly on the acid side anyhow. Right, yeah, there are a lot of your summertime vegetables tend to thrive when it is slightly acidic, of of pH like uh, around 6. And it's amazing the number of summer vegetables you grow. So oh, that's, that's true too. A lot yeah. of the vegetables as yeah. well. You were, I was saying earlier when we were talking about this off air, I said something about, oh, rhododendrons and azaleas. And oh, but who can grow a rhododendron? And you told me, well, I did in yeah. Herald. Yeah, exactly. It was in a large container. It did well. I, I bought it uh, over from a rhododendron grower in the Bay Area, and I think now you can't do that anymore. I don't think you can go to the Bay Area, buy a rhododendron, and move it back because of the spread of, uh, uh, it's a Phytophthora. It's, oh, it's uh, that um, uh, sudden it's oak the disease. Remora, yeah, the sudden oak, the remora, Phytophthora remora, yeah. I think yeah. it is. Uh, yeah. Phytophthora oh, remora. And yeah. so the, uh, I didn't realize rhododendrons are one of the quarantine oh, plants. Quarantine plants. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. Yeah, there's quite a few of those quarantine plants. Yeah. Luckily, we don't have that one here either. Right, but at this point, but you never know. If the authorities are listening, just know I bought that before there was a quarantine. Way back when. You know, another one that I absolutely love, one of my favorite trees of all time is the Arbutus Unido, the strawberry tree. Mm-hmm. That's an acid-loving tree. Um, it, uh, it, and, and in fact, it, you get a little clue because have you seen those little flowers, those little urn-shaped flowers? Well, the family that it's in, that is the kind of flower that they have, and they um, often look like that. So. What is the fa- family? So, the I don't know. I'll have to look that one up. Uh-huh. I've forgotten. I know. I was sitting there. Why am I saying this one? I don't think it's an Ericaceae, so, but I'll, I will double-check that. The sure. One of my favorite Arbutus is growing down the street from me, and it's the Arbutus maritima. Oh, that. Uh, marina. Uh, marina. Okay, yeah, yeah, that, right, marina. That's a yeah. beautiful, beautiful one. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It's got this beautiful uh, shredding-like bark. Beautiful flowers, beautiful fruit. And the shape of the tree is ideal. Yeah, it is ideal. But I would not plant it next to a sidewalk or a driveway. No, because that fruit fruit. splats all over the place. But And it also forms more of a nice um, typical tree shape, whereas the strawberry tree, if you're not careful, can be multi-stemmed shrub. You can train it to a tree. Mine happens to be a shrub. So the tree that I did have and trained it to a tree um, covered up my entire front of the house, and finally I had to take it out because it was just too much competition. It was hiding all my beautiful brick. And I have a Japanese maple, and it was competing with that. So. Still, the Arbutus Unido is a good bird hotel. 
they they like the fruit, and it's shelter too for smaller birds. Okay, so who eats the fruit? Because mine hang on till they splat off, and we have lots of birds, and yeah. I have not seen single one of them on there. Well, if they were desperate, they'd eat it. <laughs> I see if they're <laughs> desperate. All right, if they, it's like my cat. It'll, it'll eat the cheap stuff only if there's nothing else. By the way, I was right. I, it is in the Ericaceae oh, family. Yes. and All Well, right. because Ericaceae is the acid-loving family, yeah. and right. I thought that was so. Anyhow. Yeah. All right. Yeah. We'll take a short break. More Get Growing on the way on Talk 650 KSTE. You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. Coming up in a few minutes, a garden grappler. Your chance to pick up a prize or two from the Farmer Fred Prize Closet. Clue available at FarmerFred.com and the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page. Pam Bone, Master Gardener, is here. Much to her reluctance, she will be judging the garden grappler. <laughs> I th- ha- you'll, you'll do fine. You'll I do fine. Well, it's the you've got the typical... Um, Acid lovers that don't most give everybody, it away. Don't give it away. No, I'm not going to give it away. Right. I'm just going to say you've got the typical acid lovers that most people know about. Yeah. Um, and then there's the oddballs that are out there that people I'm sure will find and try to trip me up here. See, so good. I'm trying to find them myself. All right, Laura and Loomis, welcome to the program. Hi. Hi. Um, I just have a question about composting. Sure. Um, I've got a lot of um, horse manure that that um, is piling up, and um. Let's see. Some, I also have thrown in some like alfalfa that was laying all over the ground that they didn't eat, and um, um, so is that going to be okay? And then the other thing is, um, there's some there's wood shavings in there now, so is that going to be a problem? Well, the good part is you said it's been sitting in a pile, and that's good. Right, right. I think it's all yeah. great. Yeah, yeah. just. Just okay. keep it composting. And if you just turn it more frequently so that the pile gets hotter, so to kill off some of the weed seeds, that would really be helpful. Okay. That's the so thing the wood, I worry about. The wood shavings, the wood shavings are, they'll, they'll be beneficial as opposed to... Oh, definitely. In compost okay. itself, definitely. I did read, though, there was a percentage limit uh, when it comes to wood shavings, and I think it was... Well, it's only because you don't have, if you don't have enough of the wet matter. Right. You know, the dry to wet matter is um, the thing that you have to be a little careful about. There's some ratios that um, people oh. adhere to, but you know what? If if you have anything, do you have kitchen scraps you could add to it if you thought you had too many wood chips, I, too? Uh, yeah, I do. Uh, yeah. yeah. I can do that then. Okay. Do that. Yeah, bury yeah. them in the pile. Don't leave them on oh, top. Oh yeah, no, definitely. <laughs> but just work. Just keep working it, and that's an excellent combination. Yeah. Okay. Oh, good. That's terrific. Thank you yeah. so much. All right. Love Thanks. Your show. No, thank you. And I like. I love that you have Pam on. I'm always happy to hear her name and hear her voice. <laughs> well, thank you. That's really nice <laughs> yeah. of you. All right. Yeah. Made well, my thank day. You. Thanks thank for you. calling, Laura. All right. Bye-bye. Yeah. Yeah. The important thing, especially with horse manure, is to compost it because of weed seeds, and especially if there's alfalfa mixed in, you got weed seeds. That, I was thinking weed seeds. That was the yeah. whole thing. I mean, luckily you'll not have to worry much about the. Uh, um, salt damage if you're composting this stuff and right. leaching it and everything. But the weed seeds, boy, some of those are intractable, and if you don't get the heat up on them, mm-hmm. then it can be a problem. But yeah. anyhow, any composting of any sort is wonderful. And I have six compost bins right now, 
three of which, two of which are real active, and the others are ones that are just sort of, well, they're all the slow rot method, but some are even right. slower than others because I don't put the, I just like piles of garden leaves and things. And so anyhow, my husband, by the way, I have to give credit. He's the one that manages most of the composting. Um, I collect it and sit, put it out there occasionally, but he turns that those bins right fairly regularly i miss my passive compost pile <laughs> you're passive yeah yes. that's it passive that's yes. it the slow rot method yes. it's fabulous it still yeah. creates once a year we get tons of compost at the time when you need to put it in for all your vegetable gardens and then we top dress all of our citrus all of our fruit trees with compost mm-hmm. it because even though legally it can't be considered a fertilizer it's got lots of nutrition and it's quote feeding the soil because we don't feed our plants with fertilizer. That is a misnomer. Plants, trees, shrubs, everything, they feed themselves with good leaves and photosynthesis. And so we're feeding the soil. We're feeding the soil when we put on compost. It's great. I love it. Or wood chips or mulch or any of that kind of stuff. So down to Manteca we go. Mary, thanks for giving us a call. Hi, Mary. Hello. Hi. Uh, Hi, Mary. I wasn't able to get down the thing about. The, the blueberry soil. Okay. One, okay, one Fred, I'll give you the con- the method again. Okay. okay you want Fred? the combination? Yeah. Thirty-two yes. to the left. Spin uh, no. the dial to no. no. Oh, no. Oh. She wants to know what your mixture was oh, that you okay. made for your. I thought you wanted my bike lock combination. Yeah. No, it's um, one third of an azalea, rhododendron, camellia soil mix. Just look for an acid soil mix uh, at your local nursery. And that'll be one third of the mix. Another third will be peat moss. If you want to use, you know, I know there's a lot of talk about oh, peat moss, non-renewable resource. And but all you that. know, it's still out there, and yeah. somebody's got to buy it. Yeah, so. and it works. Yeah. So one third peat moss and one third of the small bark. Just look for the the smallest bark you can find and mix that in. And then just a little bit of, of soil sulfur, maybe a half cup, maybe a little less, and uh, just mix that lightly in, into the top of that. When you say a half cup, uh, what a size container uh, are you putting it in? Thank you for asking. Yes, yeah. let's say over an area. Let's. It, I'm looking, thinking about my uh, watering troughs. Yeah, you used those trough. horse watering troughs, yeah. didn't you? and those are two by two by four. Oh, okay. So it was four feet long, two feet wide, so that's what, eight oh, okay. square feet? So if it was a raised bed or something about yeah, that right. size, yeah, too. right. Okay. So, uh, and that's it, Mary. That's all it takes. You also said uh, a large container. What do you mean by large? Well, I would use the largest you could find. I would use a half barrel at the very least. Uh, I, the, the watering troughs that I bought at Tractor Supply Company were basically uh, cattle water, watering troughs that are two feet tall, two feet wide, and four feet long. And I cut holes in the bottom for drainage. I painted the outside with a, a, a color that was pleasing to my wife. And it has to be like a, a metal complementing paint like you'd paint with a car or if you go to tractor supply you can buy tractor paint and you can you can paint those troughs your favorite tractor color it can be uh you know kubota orange or, or troy built red <laughs> that's a good one or, or ford well, red I would, I would really like to get it into the ground if i can in my sandy soil well that's nice but what's the ph of your soil it's it's not enough but i i can buy an acid soil mix in a local nursery well, then work in a lot of acidic-type soil mix, um, work in the soil sulfur, 
work in compost, work in anything that's going to acidify your soil and put lots and lots of it in and mix it thoroughly with the soil that you have there. And um, a little raised bed with blueberries is nice to give them just a little bit of drainage and manage that um, uh, mixture then, too. You can put lots of it in. It would be great. I have, I have the raised bed for it, but uh, Perfect. my plants my plants have been in, in pots for two years. One's, two of them are probably uh, six gallons, and the other two are twice as big. Okay. Well, the most important thing is soil preparation. The next most important thing is double-checking those roots and actually taking that soil and really loosening it so that you can make sure there aren't these circling roots that will go round and round because that's what they'll do when you put them out into the ground and they're not going to grow very well. The plants will do very poorly, so make sure to separate the roots, cut the roots, whatever you need to do. Don't plant a pot-bound plant. Generally speaking, a blueberry in a six- or eight-gallon container for a couple of years is okay, so you're at exactly the right amount of time to move that up a size. So if you wanted to, you could go to 15s if you wanted to do that. But she wants to put them in the ground. But so just... Soil preparation is the most important thing for blueberries, and then putting in a good irrigation system. You don't want to rely on hand-watering them if you can help it because mm-hmm. they, they like moisture, they like good drainage, but they like to be watered at least once a week if they're in the ground. A good thorough soaking, um, whether you use a drip system or whatever you do, but mm-hmm. run it long enough. To- I, I miss my Manteca sandy soil. And she has sandy soil too, yeah, well, so you may have, you might have. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Well, you might have to actually irrigate uh, more often yeah. than, than our clay soils. Definitely, I could actually dig holes in oh. my Manteca soil. Well, I, I have the raised bed already empty, but good. My problem is that the plants are already leafing out, and that's all okay. I'm wondering if it's too late to transplant. No, not at all. No. You can transplant in a from a container. A container. No, nope, no. Nope. Be hard for me. No, you can transplant any time except for, even in the heat of summer, people are always planting plants. I don't recommend that as much. It's a little bit more difficult to manage the water and everything else, but you've still got plenty of time. Yeah, I would recommend not planting at night because you might trip. (laughs) (laughs) I I have the idea that probably quite a lot of the soil will come off since it is sandy soil. Yeah, yeah. So go for it, Mary. I have three varieties, and... uh, one of them has berries on already. Well, and the good. Other two are, two then they're, they're ready to go in the ground. So you go out and start working that ground as soon as you can. If it's too, well, you've got sandy soil, but so you probably don't have to worry about us with the clay soil with the ground being too wet to work right now. So go out and work it and get this stuff mixed in and use his formula, and you can put those blueberries in within the month. Mary, we got to run here. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. How far apart? Three feet apart at the very least. Three to four feet apart. Got to go, Mary, because Terry's given me a dirty look, and we got a break for news. And the Garden Grappler, which is on the way here on Talk 650 KSTE, it's Get Growing. Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. All right, it's Garden Grappler time. A chance for you to pick up a prize or two from the Farmer Fred Prize Closet. And we gave away a whole bunch of answers just like 30 minutes ago. So if you are relatively awake and sober after St. Patrick's Day and not in too much pain, you could probably answer this question, which is name an acid-loving plant. And again, an acid-loving plant, no, it's not uh, something that Timothy Leary developed. An acid-loving plant is one that prefers a pH that, generally speaking, would be, what, Pam, below 6.2 or thereabouts? 
Yeah. Six five. And they'll do real well even at five five. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it, it, it as far as the pH scale goes. But so and there are several in our landscape that are acid loving plants. And if you have some of these plants that will get mentioned and you are wondering why they are not performing well, that could be the reason. And are you telling people then this is trees, shrubs, vegetables, anything? Name an acid-loving plant. plant. Just any old plant. Acid-loving okay. plant. And it doesn't have to grow here either, does it? It doesn't have to okay. grow here. No. <laughs> it could be something they remember from their youth. Oh, okay. All right. The numbers to call in, 916-576-1578 or 866-331-8255, 916-576-1578 or 866-331-8255. Name an acid-loving plant. Pam Bone will be the official judge and jury for today's competition. And you should have a backup answer because, as you know, in the Garden Grappler, you cannot repeat an earlier answer. And that's why Caller 5 gets a bonus prize because they have it toughest of all. And, of course, psychic bonus points go to those who use the botanical name of the plant. Just because I like psychic bonus points. Oh, I see. Yes. They will give me the common name as well. Yeah, oh, don't worry about that. You shouldn't have to worry about that, Pam. Okay, well, you never know. <laughs> you have some pretty smart yes. um, um, listeners out there. so yeah, And smart-ass listeners, too, I'll have you know. The, um, now, I would never say that. No. So you said that, yeah, not I said, me. I know. I call them smart and um, with a lot of uh, good gardening acumen. Good for them, indeed. All right, let's uh while you're ruminating on that, we'll talk with Amy who wants to talk blueberries. Hi Amy. Hi. Hi. What's up? Um when do you repot blueberries? During daylight hours? Oh. <laughs> basically. That's one of those bad answers. Well, actually, yeah, it's one of my smart ass answers. Thank you. The uh you know, we were talking to Mary from Antica who was asking something similar like that, and she talked about how the plant was developing fruit right now, and I didn't have time to tell her. And I'll tell you that if you have a plant, a blueberry plant that is full of berries right now, you might as well wait until they are fully developed and you can enjoy them, and then at the end of the harvest, you can plant them uh, where you want to plant them. So that would be my only uh, restriction as far as when to plant blueberries is if they have fruit right now, if you tried to transplant it now, you might lose those berries. So enjoy the harvest, and then after the harvest, go ahead and transplant that. And Pam, basically, I didn't hear you say any restrictions as far as timing. My my plant has flowers and little leaves coming out. Yeah, if it's already flowering, you'd, you'd be risking this year's crop. I mean, if you want to live without this year's crop. No. Okay, you want this year's crop. Uh-huh. Okay, then wait till after you're done eating them. Oh, Okay. All right. And I have another question. Um, aphids, aphids, do they overwinter? Some do. Some do, yes, yeah. they do. So um, That's how they find that, your place so quickly. Yes, they're there. <laughs> they're they're there. waiting for yeah. you. Yeah. And, and then when you, when you wash them off, what happens to them? Yeah, that's always a good question. I've always wondered how the force of knocking a aphid, because one of the controls we talk about for controlling aphids, especially on new young spring growth, is you, know, you just take a hose and uh, put a jet spray on it and wash off the leaves, especially the underside of the leaves, and the aphids won't find their way back to the plant. How is that, Pam Bone? That works. Yeah, I know it works, but why can't an aphid just sort of shake it off and go, whoa, what was that, and climb back up? Well, because they're tiny little things, and hopefully you're blasting them pretty hard with that hose, and and they're falling down, and they get 
brain trauma. I'm okay. not sure. I don't, it's brain trauma, Amy. I don't know. Did they die? I think so. If they don't have a source of food, they're going to starve to death. And if there's nothing on the ground, if you remember to clean up beneath the plant and they don't land on, you know, a, a, a branch that has fallen with leaves on it, uh, they're going to starve to death before they find their way to food. It definitely helps. So, anyhow. Um, yeah, I was wondering because um, if they overwinter, they're not eating. Well, they're in a, a state of suspended animation. They're they're cocooning or whatever aphids do, how they well, overwinter. Well, I, I was double-checking our UCIPM site, and we have a pest note on aphids. It's really good. It tells you all about them. And one of the things that they say is that some aphids will lay their eggs on host plants that go through the winter, and the, uh, like a perennial plant, and they just survive on that plant through the winter. And then they move into your plants later. Well, um, so, but they survive the winter as eggs? They survive it um, as eggs on a perennial plant, yeah. All right. it, How, so I guess the cold weather just keeps that egg from developing until the temperatures warm up. Exactly. And then that uh, embryo develops, if you will. Yeah, and it just says they um, often will produce eggs in the fall and winter and provide a, uh, uh, that's a hardy stage for surviving harsh winter. And the absence of foliage. So, yeah, those eggs, I guess, are pretty tough little things. And then they're ready just to start hatching out real soon. I forget, Pam. Is it aphids or white flies that are born pregnant? Um, aphids definitely okay. are. Yes, right. they can be. Uh huh. Um, they reproduce asexually. I love that. With adult females giving birth to live offspring. As many as 12 per day without mating. Oh, my gosh. We just um, have no... No rest. No rest for the weary there, and uh, and those aphids, uh, they're just going to keep going and going. So, so how long does it take for one egg to hatch? Uh, I don't know. Let's see. Not long. Yeah. I, I, I think it's just a matter of like eight days or something like that. Oh, if here I it is. Correctly. You're right. It says if the weather is warm, not now, but they can go from the nymph, the little little nymph stage, to the adult in to reproducing adult in seven to eight days. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And then it said each adult aphid can produce up to 80 offspring in a matter of one week. You oh can see God. how, yes, they can really go to town. <laughs> That's why when you first see the Now, there, at a certain point, you just got to say, okay, I can tolerate a few. Mm-hmm. And especially if you have natural enemies in your garden, if you have uh, predatory insects that uh, feed on the bad bugs, they'll they'll keep the product uh, problem under control. It's when you start seeing massive buildups on the underside of the leaves that you want to get out the garden hose and start washing them off. Definitely. And we do have a lot of um, parasitic wasps that leave little mummies behind. They're great. And, of course, the ones that you can all see, like lady beetles and the leather wings or the soldier beetles, that the ones with the black beetles mm-hmm. with the orange head. Um, my roses, I do not spray. I don't even spray water on them because those first aphids, yes, they're sort of a mess on those first buds. And But then all the beneficials come in, and I don't have another aphid the rest of the season because I've built up enough population of the um, beneficial insects. They have to have something to feed on to start with, so you can't get rid of all the aphids to start with or the beneficials disappear. Well, if you have a consistent beneficial population, mm-hmm. Pam, then you're not using uh, any sort of insecticides. No. I don't use any insecticides in my landscape yeah. at all that I can think of. No. All right. Amy, does that help? Yeah. Okay. Do you want to take a stab at the garden grappler since you already gave an answer? 
Blueberries. There. Okay, good. All right. Very yeah. good. Oh, yeah. now we've knocked off the All right. probably the one that everyone knows. So Amy says blueberry. So Terry, what I'm going to do is put Amy back on hold here, and you can get her name and address. And Amy, I'll be sending you the prize that all five callers will get. And uh, from the uh, Farmer Fred Library of Fine Papers, I have for you my list of March garden chores as well as how to grow great gladiolas. So I'll be sending those your way. Oh, glad he always. Yeah. All right. So hold on here, Amy, and Terry will get all the good information. And I, I think, Terry, on that note, we'll take a short break. And when we come back, we'll get to callers two, three, four, and 5 in today's Garden Grappler, which is name an acid-loving plant. Blueberries is off the list. You can't repeat an earlier answer. It's Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Behind him. You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. All right, we are in the midst of the garden grappler. Today's question, name an acid-loving plant. That would be a plant that prefers a pH, a soil pH, somewhere below 6.2 or thereabouts, somewhere between usually 5.5 and 6.2. There are those plants that need that acid-based soil in order to thrive, many of which can be found in your very own garden. Pam Bone, Master Gardener, is here. She's the judge for today's competition. Uh, Amy was the first caller before the break and said blueberries. And yes, indeed, blueberries are an acid-loving plant. Cindy and Chico, you want to add to that list? Well, I would choose, I believe, a rhododendron. I would choose one, too, despite the trepidations of Pam Bone. Well, it's only because even though Fred says he has successfully grown them, I have a lot of difficulty finding healthy, vigorous, flowering rhododendrons in our area, um, unlike azaleas. You said you agree? Don't give away I agree, thing. yes. Oh. <laughs> I love them, but I do agree they're very difficult to find beautiful ones. There are a few here in Chico that I've seen. I just, oh, what a dream. And what have they done right? <laughs> I know, because... I they, don't know. Well, what variety? <laughs> is, yeah, I've, the same thing. And they, they're beautiful. One thing but to I've note... Yeah. had trouble. One thing to note on rhododendrons is when you're walking the neighborhood and you see them, note which side of the house are, they are on, and I bet they're on the east side of the uh, house. Yes, they are. Yeah. I remember that. Okay. Yes, that actually is true. And we do have a neighbor real close by that does have one that's been in for 35 years. It it always um, blooms. It's on the east side of the house. Mm-hmm. It does beautifully. And their, their yard isn't really well taken care of. I think it, it, it survives on benign neglect, meaning not overwatering, because right. so many of the rhododendrons um, require such good drainage. And in many of our soils, they don't get it. So if you're not watering it to death, that's a good thing. All right. Rhododendron, good answer there, Cindy. So yeah. I'll be sending you the uh, handouts on growing great gladiolas, much to the humor of uh, Pam Bone. And Mar- um, March Bradenshaws. With my Daphne, I had one that was about four feet by four feet that I planted like in 1986, and it died. Well, the plants I've purchased since then don't seem to survive. And uh, last year, I actually put one in a pot, thinking it was something in my soil, perhaps. But this year, it did bloom with some nice little blooms. But the plant looks rather wimpy, and the leaves look like they're yellowing. So now what? Nobody said Daphne's were easy. Nope, I agree. They're tough. And in the soil, the number one reason that they do poorly is the 
the soil drainage and mm-hmm. the fact that they like water, but it has to drain so they can't sit with the wet feet. And in a container, you can get some of the opposite then, that it's draining out all the time and it's not moist enough for them. So it, it's tough to grow Daphne. And, yeah. and then if you do, you just don't breathe on it once it does well. Don't do anything <laughs> different. Yeah. yeah. All right. The neighbors used to always stop and admire it. And oh. I had it outside my kitchen window, so... The scent was just beautiful. Yeah, that, well, it is. Once you get it. That I, makes people yeah. keep wanting to try yeah, them. Yeah. Send, uh, well, Cindy. And that's it. Now, this was a plant I purchased from Herb Hubbard when he was still with his nursery plant here in Chico. Oh, okay. And he's been gone for years. But I remember he told me today they've hybridized them so much that they're not strong like they used to be. and. It's kind of tough to grow. Well, I'm finding that out now. Well, there so. you go. Well, keep trying. All right. Cindy, we have to run here. Thanks for uh, the answer. So is there fertilizer I should be using on a Daphne? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, no. I, if it's in a container, just a normal fertilization like you do any container plant and okay. fairly regularly and just water it in well. And a lot of times I like to cut down. Um, maybe a liquid fertilizer by half of what it says and treat it a little bit like a house plant so you do it more frequently but not very okay. much. Yeah, be careful with yeah. the fertilizer I'll, and I'll the data. Yeah, I, that's exactly fingers. right. <laughs> yeah, cross your fingers okay, might help. Thank you so much. Yeah, All right, thank Cindy, you. thanks for the call. Caller number three in today's Garden Grappler, it's Thomas in Sacramento. Thomas, go ahead and give us an acid-loving plant. Hi, Farmer Fred. Hi, Pam. I'm going to go with strawberries. Strawberries, Pam? I Well, I know something else that's related that is but i don't know that strawberries really well well i find the strawberries do real well i do have a blueberry container and i have strawberries all around it and uh they do enjoy that acid soil i found do you they do oh okay yeah i was just looking to see if they um say oh yeah they definitely do. I mean, I knew that they like it in acid because they do well in our soils. It's below that. And they will do anywhere um, between 5.3 and 6.5 is the best. 6.5 is an excellent. Uh, our, most of our soils, Fred, I think we were saying earlier, have a pH of about 6.5. Google in, says in strawberries like 5.5 five to 6.5. Yeah. And Google wouldn't lie. No, of no, course no, not. No, okay. Definitely All not. Right. <laughs> Thomas, good answer. Yeah. So I'll be sending you my handouts on March garden chores and growing great gladiolas. Awesome. Thanks, guys. And, you know, I do have a question. I'm starting sure. a straw bale garden. Um, Why? You see. <laughs> well, I just want to experiment, and I'm actually okay. doing a gourd tunnel. Um, right. So I'm going to grow some gourds, and I um, just wanted to see if any hints or help you have for growing gourds in our climate. I am uh, working with Gail Pothauer, who's a master gardener out at the Fair Oaks Horticulture Center, who has been experimenting for years with straw bale gardens. And I'm going to get her together with me and Dale Karsten, who wrote the book about straw bale gardening, because he has a new book out on the subject. And we're going to have a... I have that book, actually. I got it from the library, and okay. I've been reading it, and it's awesome. Yeah, well, yeah, he's a big promoter of straw bale gardens. And uh, in my mind, it, if you've got soil or raised beds, what the heck do you need straw bales for? But uh, They're hard to manage because they dry out. Yeah. I've been to so many places where they're lopsided and falling over, and um, it's really hard to manage uh, water-wise and even nutrition-wise. It's very difficult to keep... I just like soil better than I'd rather put the straw as a mulch on the ground and put them in a raised bed. I tried it one year without much luck. Yeah. And I've been to several different sites with um, 
from everywhere from community colleges to the Hort Center to others, and I'm just not sure that it isn't just sort of a novelty, personally. But, Thomas, I don't I don't want to discourage you from trying it. Even and, though we are. <laughs> yeah, because uh, it, every all gardening is local, and you may, exactly. ha- you may have astounding success. So right. go ahead, give it a and shot. And it'd be fun. And I don't see that a gourd would be any different than anything else. Yeah. They they love to meander and roam, and, and they, li- they do need enough um, place to just put out their yeah. their vines and they need full sun full that's the number one failure of gourds people don't put them in blazing hot full sun all day long okay that's great yeah i got a 16 foot trellis built around that hmm. the straw bale oh so perfect I'll share my results with you guys all definitely right. i'd right. like to hear about it well thanks so much all right thomas yeah good luck with that a little gorge in the uh, gourds in the straw bale and phil in moraga who uh always is doing interesting things i feel oh yeah i'm kicking up rocks you actually mentioned me in your last segment so i figured i'd give you a call did i and hi pam you will you taught me a class in uh 2013 yuba city did you really are you a master gardener Oh, well, very good. Oh, I'm so glad. Thanks. Yeah. But so he keeps moving you. around, so I never yeah, know what county Yeah, I was going to say, in. yeah, you're in another county now. Yeah. Oh, I've, I'm all over the place, but I'm in Contra Costa County right now. Oh, you are? Well, I teach classes there, too. I just taught one in uh, January in Contra Costa. Go back there every year. I'm glad you're still doing that. All right, anyway, yeah. I'm, I, know I know people are long-winded, so I won't be. How about Gardenia? How about a Gardenia? Oh, yes. Gardenia yes. is definitely. Good answer. Yeah, though. that's a good answer, and that's one that... That's another plant, um, not quite as bad as um, Rotos. Uh, the, the rhododendrons. <laughs> but people are, well, in, in that I, you either have really good luck with them or you don't. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times, again, soil-related, uh, people just don't water correctly. And maybe they don't have enough acid-loving soil. So. Yeah. Okay, now can I ask a quick question? Sure. Besides being, uh, be, being a smart A caller. That's you. Um, yes. <laughs> that's me. I know. That's why I called you. Hey, um, um, should I fertilize right now? What do you want to fertilize? Yeah. Um, the gardenias and stuff, they're getting a little bit, they're getting a little bit uh, yellow. Little bit yellow so what's, yeah. the, what's the soil temperature right now where you are? I'm going to say it's 45. And that's too cold. So, I would wait till cool. the temperature, cool. the soil temperature is over 50. Perfect. Okay, you answered my question, and I know what you're going to send me. You guys have a beautiful day. Right. Okay. Thanks, Phil. All right. See you, buddy. Okay, bye. So, <clears throat> yes. I was just going to say with gardenias, they like a pH uh, below 6, between 5 and 6. Right. But they like a lot of organic matter, too. Mm-hmm. And that's another way of introducing and keeping the soil a little bit more acidic. So, adding lots of organic matter. I'm still confused about how much light gardenias need. You know, uh, mine do the best. Uh, I have them on a south facing area but with shade from fruit trees and they prefer to have a little bit of shade Um, they yellow out pretty badly when i had them in full sun one of the problems i think i had growing gardenias was the location of growing them which was on the south side of the house with a dappled shade Mm -hmm. but it was the soil that's right next to the house and i don't think that's the best soil in the world well maybe it's leaching out the lime from the foundation or something too and it wasn't acid enough who knows my daughter did grow uh, she grows them on the east side of the house and she's probably got some of the best i've seen Mm -hmm. though um they sometimes get a little, and they're right next to the foundation, and they yellow just a little bit. We don't know if it's just because forget to water them yeah. sometimes. Too. Or the fact there's a gutter right next to it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That could be it, too. All right, let's go to Caller 5 in today's Garden Grappler. It is Marilyn in Sacramento. And Marilyn, if you can come up with another acid-loving plant that isn't a blueberry, rhododendron, strawberry, or gardenia, I have for you 
from the Sacramento County Master Gardeners, their gardening guide and calendar, which is an excellent resource, not only for figuring out what day of the year it is, but also for what to do in the way of gardening every day of the year. So I'll be sending that your way if you can come up with an acid-loving plant. Marilyn. Okay, um, I'm going to go with camellias. Pam. Yes, that's an excellent one. That's a really good one. Yes, indeed. Definitely. Good answer, Marilyn. So and especially, that's the camellia capital around here, so you, so you got to mention yeah. a camellia. Right. I like it. Good answer, Marilyn. Thanks for playing. Yeah, thank you. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. And Pam Bone, thanks for uh, dropping by today. Yeah, you see, time flies when you're having fun. Was she fun. number five? Yeah, she was what number five. What did she five. win? She won the, I told you, the Master Gardener Gardening Guide and oh, Calendar. Oh, the Gardening Guide and Calendar. Oh, yes, that's right. I forgot. Yeah. <laughs> I, wasn't, I wasn't paying attention yeah, I to that. Oh, You were thinking about camellias. Yeah, I was. I was thinking, I was hoping yeah. somebody would mention camellia. I love the camellias. All They're right. great. Well, there, it was caller five, so there. Yeah, good. Anyhow, yes, I enjoyed being here very much, uh, Fred, and I'll look forward to the next time. Good luck uh, with the wedding Friday. Yes, thank you. Yeah. I hope it won't rain. Yeah. My daughter, I think we mentioned on KFBK, my daughter, my oldest daughter is getting married on Friday uh, in Lincoln at the Catavadera. Mm. And uh, it's supposed to be outside for the ceremony, inside for the reception. But... 30% chance of rain. Oh, no, don't say that, Fred. No, I'd better than saying 60% chance of rain. No, that's true. But the only problem is, even if it doesn't rain, it's kind of cold, too. So, huh. But his whole family comes from North Dakota, so I said they won't mind the cold, I hope. <laughs> they don't have to shovel snow, so they'll be happy. That's true. Thanks All right. a lot. Pam, appreciate it. Thanks so much. When we come back, we're talking to author Maureen Gilmer about the colorful dry garden. That's coming up next as we continue with Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. There's a delicate... Get Growing continues with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. There's a new book out called The Colorful Dry Garden. Over 100 flowers and vibrant plants for drought, desert, and dry times. The author, Maureen Gilmer, who has written over 18 garden and landscape books. She has over 30 years of experience in landscape design. And uh, one of my favorite books of hers was written over 20 years ago called California Wildfire Landscaping. But Maureen, let's talk about the colorful dry garden. And for sure, people keep talking about the drought, the drought, the drought. Well, maybe that is just California's new normal. Maybe California dry is what we can expect from here on out. And it sure makes a lot of sense to be transitioning landscapes from summer water intensive plantings to plants that can take less water during the warm seasons. After moving to the uh, Southern California desert from Northern California, I had to learn a whole new palette of plants down here. And these are really, really tough desert species that I didn't know anything about. That includes succulents and cactus and all that stuff, but it also included um, a lot of other material that makes great planting for gardens. And um, a lot of these plants are not known outside the desert communities. And so I wanted to bring those plants into the the conversation of what we can grow in California during these drier times that's new and different than most of the, you know, the typical stuff that we usually see. And also, um, it, it's very important to me personally that we get back to growing flowers. I think that we've had a lot of other criteria, and so I felt that, we needed to have a book that was exclusively about color and flowers because I think that with all the strife in our country, it's a good idea for us to get back to gardening just for the pure joy of its aesthetic beauty in our life. 
Well, you bring that up in your book as well. And uh, maybe one of the first transitions, if people are ripping out a lawn and they need something in the meantime before more permanent plants take over, would be sowing wildflowers. And you have a, oh, yeah. a great chapter in the book on wildflowers and the ones that would do well in uh, various areas of California. But one complaint I hear from a lot of people is, I, I threw out some wildflower seeds and nothing happened. What, what are some of the reasons why wildflower sowings might fail? Wildflowers, if you notice, they don't live on the best ground. They live on kind of crummy ground, and they like a lot of drainage and a lot of sun most of the time. And so when you put out uh, wildflowers seed, if you just throw it out there, it's going to sit on the top of the ground, and birds and other animals will come to eat it. If it does sprout, it might just sprout a little bit. My belief with wildflowers is you've got to stir up the top inch of soil just a little bit if you can. So you can put the wildflower seed out now, but this is something that most people don't know. You should really sow California poppies in the fall because they need to have a taproot by now. And if they don't have a taproot by now, they'll bloom, but they won't survive their bloom and they'll die. And so to get really great California poppies, you've got to sow them early, like in November, so that they can take advantage of the winter months to grow that taproot. And that's how they become biennial and perennial. And that's how the clumps get so large. With wildflower seed also, it's important like to choose a California native or similar kind of mix so that the plants are naturally adapted to our growing seasons here in California and not somewhere else. And uh, you also point out in your in your book, The Colorful Dry Garden, that uh, babying wildflowers uh, can be detrimental to their health because they don't really like very rich soil, do they? No, they don't. And so I, I throw them all over. And here I grow, I live on an alluvial fan. It's almost like the soil here is like um, decomposed granite. And those seeds sprout like crazy in this stuff. And my Palm Springs garden had really sandy soil, and every seed that fell on that soil sprouted. So I know that dense soil is very difficult for growing wildflowers and getting them started if it's not scarified on the top in order to give the seeds some place to lodge. That's why if you throw wildflower seeds out in your gravel fields and dry stream beds, they'll do really well. They're great back 40 plants, basically. Yeah, and, and then they're done by fire season. So they don't offer any fuels at the other end, uh, which is important to me. And I like those for an easy pickup um, because a lot of times in the early spring, there's not much going on. So if you get the wildflowers out there in a timely fashion, and you can sow them every fall. I mean, you don't have to get them to naturalize. Let's talk about some other uh, wildflowers that you can uh, grow from seed easily in Inland Valley areas, such as uh, California Central Valley. You mentioned the California poppy, which, of course, is the state flower and, and probably the most famous uh, easy wildflower to grow. What are some others? I like our lupins, especially the annual seed-grown lupin. You often see them up. Uh, in Northern California along the edges of the roads in big masses where the gravel is. <laughs> That's where they like to grow. And so remember that, that rich soil is too much for a lot of wildflowers. If you notice, if you go out in nature, a lot of the wildflowers are growing on cliffs and, and uh, very steep slopes. That's so that they don't have to sit in the water. Mm. And so by the time um, 
years come along, they'll just be fine and treat them like an annual flower every year if they don't become naturalized. Now, some of uh, the seeds might take two years to flower. I'm thinking like the coreopsis, the tick seed. Yeah. And those, you know, um, when I did my property up in the Sierra Nevada, I had it rotivated. And then we um, used a belly seeder and did the whole property in an irrigated pasture mix with wildflowers mixed in. Up in that mix that first year came Shasta, Daisy, and Coreopsis. So we would mow around the flowers uh, when we were mowing the pasture and leave them in big clumps. Well, they lasted years after years, after years in there. And, and so they did like it. It was just beautiful when we'd mow it in the spring. Now, your book, The Colorful Dry Garden, is much more than just wildflowers. It talks about permanent plants uh, that range from uh, low-growing ground covers uh, all the way to uh, trees. And let's talk a little bit about some uh, drought-tolerant or low-water-use trees that would be suitable for the Central Valley. Well, let me tell you about what is a low-water-use tree. And and that's the question we have to ask ourselves because um, it's all how we irrigate that tree. Like here... Um, I irrigate my trees with inline drip emitters, which are half-inch tubing that has emitters every eight inches on the one I use because I use it for my vegetable garden too. So when I water those my trees, which are relatively new, and I've got California pepper, and uh, uh, which will grow up in, in the north, and um, also some of the acacias and, and things that grow up north, like black acacia, Milwaukee, uh, Acacia melanoxalon was one of my favorites for Yuba County and Sutter County. So there's a lot of drought-resistant trees. But the trick is, how are you going to water them? And if you're not using spray irrigation anymore. So what I do is I take these inline emitter strips and I spiral them around the base of the tree. So that there's like 8 emitters or 10 emitters under there. And each time I go around, I go out about a foot. So what I have is this collar of emitters around each tree that allows that tree to have a healthy wide root zone, not just one water point where all its roots go. So that when it does rain, the larger root system can take advantage of the natural water supply as well. Now, when you say collar, you mean more of a spiral because that line yeah, is, is snaking and I, wider and wider. Correct. So I start at the trunk, and then I just go out and go around. Every foot or 18 inches, I put another one. So usually, you know, uh, and I believe I've seen some commercially used versions of those that you might be able to get at ir- irrigation places, but I just make my own because it's simple, and I put a cap on the end, and then I run it off the supply line. And so I run my trees that way. And, uh, you know, my water here is very expensive. And so I'm very, very particular about can the plant grow on a normal drip system? Does it need special water? Does it have to have, like, for example, uh, plants like camellias, which is not a drought-resistant plant, but camellias are surface feeders. And so they're used to having a lot of area to feed off of. Well, if you put one emitter in there, those that plant cannot root to that emitter properly. Now, if you put a circle of emitters around that that camellia, it would work better. So this inline drip emitter tubing designed for vegetable gardens 
uh, actually works very good for trees. And then you start your young tree that way, and it becomes adapted to the drip irrigation during the summer, and then it becomes adapted to the natural soil moisture in the winter. It's a great book. It's brand new from Maureen Gilmer. It's entitled The Colorful Dry Garden, Over 100 Flowers and Vibrant Plants for Drought, Desert, and Dry Times. And Maureen, if people want more information about the book, I bet there's a website they could visit. Uh, yes, you can go to moplants.com or better yet, find me on Facebook because I, I post a lot of fun stuff uh, related to plants and desert and um, arid information that I think wildlife and all that kind of stuff. The Colorful Dry Garden. It's a brand new from Sasquatch Books. Check it out. Maureen Gilmer, thanks yeah. for a few minutes of your time today. Hey, thank you, Fred. It's always been a pleasure. Coming up will be upcoming garden events, and we'll answer some of the email you've been sending to Fred at FarmerFred.com as we continue with Get Growing on Talk 650 KSTE. Gardeners. You're listening to Get Growing with Farmer Fred. Talk 650 KSTE. Here again, Fred Hoffman. Well, I mentioned spring is approaching on Tuesday, and as a result, or it's strange coincidence, more garden events happening in the coming week, and it'll be that way for the next uh, five, six weeks or so. So let's run down the list of what's happening in the coming week as far as garden activities. Today, it's going on right now until 4 o'clock at the Shepherd Garden and Arts Center. They're having their spring sale, and they have plants, pots, garden items, bamboo, jewelry, books, crafts. Many of the clubs that meet at the Shepherd Garden and Arts Center are participating in this sale, such as the Perennial Plant Club, the Begonia Society, the African Violet Society, and a lot more. And uh, it's all to help pay for the upkeep for the Shepherd Garden and Art Center. They, uh, It's a great building that a lot of garden clubs in the area use for their meetings and their special events. Shepherd Garden and Art Center is in McKinley Park, and that's where this sale is going on. 3330 McKinley Boulevard, across the street from the tennis courts, at the at McKinley Park, the Shepherd Garden and Art Center Spring Sale going on today until four o'clock. Our friend Steve Zion, Sacramento's organic advocate, is at Green Acres right now in Sacramento. They're at eighty five zero one Jackson Road, and uh, he's offering uh, less toxic garden advice as he usually does. And he's representing our water, our world. So you can see Steve. Uh, down. Don't let the sight of him scare you, by the way. But uh, you can meet him there, down there at the Green Acres on Jackson Road in Sacramento from now until 3 p.m. Also going on today over in Davis, the Master Gardeners of Yolo County have an open forum and a couple of presentations as well going on from 2 to 4 o'clock. At 2.15, they'll be uh, talking about when do I plant my spring vegetable garden. And uh, the topic at 3.15 is the perfect time to weed and mulch. I'll answer the second part first. Now, now, go outside. Go pull some weeds. Add some mulch. All right. Anyway, that's going on at the library there in Davis, the Mary Stevens Davis Library, 315 East 14th Street in Davis. Then this Friday, the Master Gardeners of Yellow County will be talking about composting and vermiculture, and they'll there will be a working worm farm on display, as well as information on how to care and harvest your worms that are making compost for you, worm castings. That's Friday, March 23rd, noon to 2, at the West Sacramento Library at 1212 Merkley Avenue. Coming up on Wednesday, the Sacramento County Master Food Preservers have a class on tropical and ethnic foods, such as um, Danish cherry sauce or a tamarind chutney 
or Thai hot and sweet dipping sauce or candied kumquats. Who knew? The master food preservers of Sacramento County will be demonstrating these, and uh, they'll have uh, you know, a lot of great information for you about that. From 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. this Wednesday, there is a $5 fee, and it's payable at the door. No reservations necessary. It's at the Cooperative Extension Office in Sacramento, which is at 4145 Branch Center Road, which is near the intersection of Bradshaw and Kiefer. Coming up next Saturday over in Calaveras County, the Master Gardeners Demonstration Garden will be open from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. They'll have a plant sale going on from 10 to 12. The Calaveras Resource Conservation District has been awarded hundreds of ponderosa and sugar pine, as well as giant sequoia seedlings through Cal Fire, and those will be given out to landowners who lost trees to the Butte Fire or tree mortality in general in Calaveras County. So that'll be next Saturday, 10 to 1 o'clock, there at their demonstration garden at 891 Mountain Ranch Road in San Andreas. Coming up next Saturday, the San Joaquin County Master Gardeners have a class on successful summer vegetables, and that'll be 1030 to noon at the Tracy Library at 20 East Eaton Avenue in Tracy, 1030 to noon. That's next Saturday, March the 24th. Also next March 24th, a little combination class by the El Dorado Master Gardeners and Master Food Preservers. It'll be tomatoes from seed to table, basically how to grow tomatoes, maybe how to eat tomatoes, and uh, how to preserve them. And that will be next Saturday, 9 a.m. to noon, at the Government Center Hearing Room at 2850 Fairlane Court in Placerville, and that again next Saturday. So the garden events starting to pile up as April approaches. We got, what, one more week? 12 more days, 13 more days of uh, March. And is the weather going to go out like a lion or a lamb? Taking a look at the weather, it looks like it's going to be a lion. We had enough hail at our place yesterday to make it look like it snowed. And we had an inch of rain in about an hour and a half uh, between 4.30 and 6 p.m. And I'm just glad I wasn't on my bike at that time. Uh, but uh, today's weather, mostly sunny, so that's nice. Get things done today, high of 60 degrees. Monday, sunny, nice, high of 66 degrees. And then things go wacky again with a chance of rain on Tuesday, 50% chance of rain. Wednesday, rain likely. Thursday, rain likely. Friday, a chance of showers and a slight chance of showers on Saturday. Fortunately, it looks like it won't be as cold as it's been getting uh, like this morning, down to 33 or 34 degrees uh, throughout uh, much of Sacramento County. Uh, the overnight low tonight, 39, and the overnight lows for the coming week look to be in the upper 40s to low 50s. So that's almost getting to normal. Uh, a normal mid-March temperature range is usually a high of uh, something like 65 or so and a low of 46. So we've been below normal. And, of course, we've had more rain in March. I think it was Mark Finan who posted on Twitter, uh, the KCRA meteorologist, that we've had more rain in March than we've had in December, January, and February combined. Your totals may vary. All rain is local. And, um, yeah, we, we we're piling it up. But do not think that is going to end the drought. It won't end the drought. Because when it comes to snow water content, it is still below normal. When they took the last readings, the official readings, at the uh, 1st of um, March, 
And actually, they did two readings in early March. In March 1st, it, they took a measurement, and then it rained like crazy and snowed like crazy up in the mountains. They took another snowpack measurement around March 4th or 5th. And from that measurement, the snow water e- equivalent was something like 40 or 44 percent. And they think even with all the snow that's falling in the Sierra right now, the snow water equivalent is only 50, 55 percent. So there will still be some deficits being run. Now, we do have a good supply of water in the reservoirs, as is, with the exception of Oroville, whose level had been brought down in order for them to do the work on the spillways. But uh, conservation is still in order as far as uh, using water, and uh, don't think you can, you're you going to be successful with a lawn, a, a typical lawn, if you want to install a lawn now. You may want to rethink that because it, there's a good chance that uh, watering restrictions may be employed later this year, uh, more so than what they already are. So, you know, we just have to come to the conclusion that here in California, our new normal is going to be drier conditions than what we're normally used to. Even though we may have what looks to be a normal rainfall for this year, we could easily be running a water deficit. And, uh, you know, like they say, climate is what you expect, weather is what you get. Don't pay so much attention to what we're getting, and what we're expecting is probably going to be less. All right. Well, that was a happy note to end on, Fred. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll come back and try again next week. Uh, we're going to, on the KSDE Farm Hour, more about the snowpack, also freeze damage of almonds, and we profile a lot of great young farmers who are spreading the good word about agriculture to the community in, a, in many various uh, innovative methods. So that's coming up next on the KSTE Farm Hour. Thank you for listening. I appreciate your support in this year 26 of Get Growing. And if they let me, I'll be back again next Sunday, 10 to noon, for another thrill-packed edition of Get Growing. Bye-bye.